You may be seated, but if you are a kid or a kid at heart and would like to come join me right down here on this blue rug, I would love to have you, say four years old, a sixth grade, middle schoolers and high schools, feel free to come down and help me get through this if you want to help me kind of maybe work with some kids. Yeah, Caleb, you can sit on the ground with them. It's okay. <laughs> come on up, guys. All right. Yes, come on over. Thank you, Elizabeth and Oliver. Thank you for coming over. Hi, how are you? Come on down. You don't have to sit right on the blue rug. Maybe there's not enough room for all of us in the blue rug, but you're pretty close. Nice. On Palm Sunday, we started reading through the biggest story, Bible storybook, a couple of accounts of this week because the biggest story talks a lot about the week that Jesus died and then didn't stay dead, right? So if, how many of you were, heard the story on Palm Sunday? How many of you? Okay, great. That's okay. The news, good news is still coming. You're going to get to hear the best part, all right? Are you ready? So tonight's section is called The Snake Crusher is Crushed for Us. Who's the snake crusher, do you think? I think that's Jesus. Do you think it's Jesus? I think he's right. All right, Oliver. Jesus, okay, so in the very beginning, in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, God, for the first time, talked about his plan to rescue man from sin. And he told the serpent right then that there would be one who would come someday to conquer evil and crush the head of the serpent. Because God already had a plan. Jesus was going to be our rescuer from sin. So yes, Jesus came. Now, you know, we talked on Palm Sunday that the week got a little sad. Do you remember that? That it was going to get sad and sadder and sadder still because Jesus knew that he had come to die and that it was going to be no ordinary death. We call the day that he died Good Friday, and it is. It's very good. It's amazingly good. In fact, I would say it's unbelievably good, except it really happened, and we do need to believe it. Jesus suffered so that we could be set free. Jesus died so that we could live forever. And Jesus was the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. And that's why we call it Good Friday. But for anyone who loved Jesus, that Friday didn't seem very good. It seemed anything but good. It seemed like very sad Friday, or tragic Friday, or the worst Friday in the history of the world. But... As soon as it was morning, you see, Pilate, Jesus was taken to Pilate. The Jewish leaders bound Jesus, they tied his, tied his hands up, and they took him to the ruler in that region whose name was Pilate. Now, Pilate was the one who would get to decide whether Jesus lived or died. We know he could only decide what God would allow anyway, what God had already planned. And Pilate wasn't convinced that Jesus had done anything. He wanted to release Jesus and be done with him. But Pilate, Pilate was more concerned about everybody liking him than he was about doing the right thing. So he gave the crowd in Jerusalem an option. He said, I tell you what, I'll release this prisoner, this murderer, this Barabbas, or... You could have the king of the Jews, Jesus. And the crowd said, 
Give us Barabbas. They chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Then what should I do with Jesus, Pilate asked. And the crowd yelled, Crucify him! Can you imagine? So the soldiers took Jesus away. And they put a purple robe on him and they gave him a crown of thorns. And they pretended to worship him, but it was all just like a big joke to them. They mocked him. They struck him on the head. They spat on Jesus. If you could have seen Jesus being led away to his death, it would have seemed all upside down to you. Here was the maker of everything in the world. So weak he couldn't carry his own cross. Here was God's beloved son, our savior. Mocked and mistreated by anyone and everyone? It just seemed wrong. But there he was, Jesus the Christ, hanging from a cross, and the sky went black because it was a day of judgment and everything was dark. And Jesus cried out to heaven for help. But this wasn't the time to feel the smile of God. This was the time to feel the curse of the law and the weight of sin. Jesus had become sin for us, and when he breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The disciples were scared and confused. The world was dark and sad and everything seemed wrong. But remember what it said in the scripture? One centurion, one Roman soldier right there at the foot of the cross. One man had seen it all and he got it right. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And if Jesus was the Son of God, maybe the last breath was not the last word we would hear from Jesus. Because just as Jesus knew that he came to die, Jesus knew he wasn't going to stay dead. Let's pray. That gives you a little inkling of what's coming next, doesn't it? <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for dying that we can live forever. And thank you that you did not stay dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, you can go back to your families. Pastor Matt's going to come and talk with us here. Well, thank you once again for joining us, for being here for our Good Friday service, for bringing your family, your friends, your little ones. And um, my name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Chapel City Church. If I haven't met you, I certainly hope to have the chance to do that tonight or at some point soon. Uh, we would invite you all, and I'll say it again at the end, invite you all back to our Easter services at 8.30 this Sunday or 11 this Sunday. And in between those times at 9.45, we're going to celebrate baptism. So this is a great weekend to get uh, to know the church, what is important to us, and why we do the things that we do. And uh, you just saw that a bunch of littles came up front. I am very much aware that they are still out in the seats. And I'm aware that it is Friday night, roughly around dinner time. And I want to remind you that I and the elders and the people around you are glad that they are here. And we would rather have little noises, little voices, little feet asking little questions from little hearts than we would have a stoic, silent sanctuary of 
matured and maturing saints without that light. So we appreciate that you and your kids are here. Um, kids, if you need to keep mom and dad under control, just give them the look. We'll be all right. But I just want to remind you that those are good things, and we're happy that they're here. And as we come to Good Friday, we do a lot of familiar things. There's a lot that we know, a lot that we've seen, a lot that we cover. And even in the way that we sing and the songs that we sing, uh, Good Friday has a way of being relatively simple. It's the same simple themes. It's even uh, somber. It's reflective, and those are good things. It's good for us to even have a whole service where we're kind of forced to slow down and to be quiet a bit because that's not what I normally want to do. I want to get on to the next thing. And especially when the thing that I'm in is difficult or uncomfortable, I'm in a hurry to get to the next thing. And Good Friday is uncomfortable in a way that Easter Sunday is not. Good Friday is somber. Good Friday is confusing least if you're the disciples who had pinned your every hope on the fact that this one, this Jesus, might just be the Messiah that your people have waited hundreds of years for. Good Friday is darkness, spiritual and physical. Easter is light. Easter is life. Easter is resurrection. Good Friday, if I'm not careful, has a way of bringing me right back face to face with all of those sins in my life that I would rather not linger on. That's why this is good. Because there are times when we need to linger at the foot of the cross and be reminded why Good Friday is good. Because sin is serious. Sin is not some foreign, far-out concept. Sin is a personal reality with eternal implications. And as we've read through the story, and as Kara presented the story in more childlike terms, we're familiar with the details. But today, for just a few minutes, I want to remind us of why those details matter to us and why they matter for today and how they can help us respond rightly today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open with me, uh, not to any of the gospel accounts, but to the book of 1 Peter, almost at the end of your New Testament. If you turn with me to 1 Peter, in particular, 1 Peter chapter 2. See, Peter is writing to a church that is scattered, and Peter's writing to a church that is suffering or beginning to suffer on account of their faith. And what Peter does not do is give them pat theological answers to make them feel better. Peter does not pat them on the head and say, they're there, you'll be okay, it's not that bad. And he certainly doesn't say, it's okay, and it's certainly going to get better. He calls them to look at Christ. And in particular, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he calls them to look at the sacrifice of Christ. And that's where we're going to be today. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 21 to 25. That's what we're going to look at for the next few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, this is what God's word says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Will you pray with me again? Lord, as we open up your word and as we look through these things, I ask that you would help us to see clearly. In a world that has more information than we know what to do with, in a world with more points of view 
than people, it seems. Lord, help us to see clearly, to cut through the clutter and the assumptions, to cut through our own agendas and our own preferences and to see why the death of Christ matters. Lord, open our eyes so that we might not only behold wonderful things from your word as the psalmist writes, but Lord, open our eyes so that we might respond to the truth that we see. Lord, we recognize that like sheep we stray, and so we don't bring anything to this equation other than our desperate need for a Savior. And so we come humble and dependent, asking that you would come alongside us and do those things that we could not, that you would draw our hearts to you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm a visual person. I like to see what I'm talking about. I like to think that I help people see what I'm talking about when I'm rambling. I like to have a whiteboard if I'm doing a class scenario so that I can draw something terrible to at least make me think that I'm making myself clear, which I'm usually not. But I like to see things. I like to see the map of where I'm going so I can visualize the trip. I like to see the example in the artwork that I'm trying to do so I know how far short I've, how far short I've fallen. I like to see the pattern of where I'm going. And that's what Peter is offering these people in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking to a people that are growing weak and weary from very real suffering. And as I mentioned on Sunday when we went through Hebrews chapter 12, uh, where the need was for endurance, Peter is writing to a people that are in need of endurance. And we are a people, again, largely from what I've heard over the last two years, and maybe even increasingly now, we're a people who need endurance. We're weary, we're tired stress, circumstances, a hundred thousand other things that push in on our lives uh, that draw us to the point of growing weary and maybe even faint. And as Peter talks to this precious group of believers, he tells them, in some senses, the hardest thing that he can. And that's not that things are going to be okay, that things are going to get better, that life is going to get easier. He says, you are suffering, do it well. He says, you're suffering, but you have the ability even to suffer in a way that honors God, that you have the ability to live in humble obedience, even when your circumstances are unjust and unfair. And that's like the specific context of where he is at this part of chapter two. He's just finished saying that some of you might have masters that are cruel, that are crooked, that are wicked. Yet he calls them to submit even to those kind of masters. But then he holds up this picture, this picture of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he takes them through as a response to how to live in unthinkable circumstances is to see the picture of Christ's suffering. And if you look at verse 21, the first thing he reminds them of is that Christ suffered for us. He says, for to this you have been called, this obedience, this kind of life, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. On Good Friday, we're reminded that Christ suffered, but on Good Friday, we're acutely reminded that Christ suffered for us. See, if I'm honest, as I look at my life, the vast majority of my suffering is really on my own account. I suffer because I didn't do something well. My relationships suffer because sometimes I'm not a very good friend. I'm not a very good husband. I'm not a very good father. I'm not always a very good pastor. Most of the discomfort that comes in my life, I can trace directly back to my own failures, really. But Peter holds up this Christ, this Jesus, who didn't suffer because of anything that he had done. From eternity past, existing as God, very God, speaking creation into existence, uh, in the throne, in the praises of angels, perfection. 
every breath that he breathed from the manger in Bethlehem to the cross at Golgotha, perfection. Not a stray word. Not a careless thought. Not a single heart attitude or motivation that went against what God called good and right and holy. And people like that, well, there are no people like that, but surely someone like that doesn't deserve to suffer at all, do they? He didn't deserve any pain. He didn't deserve to feel loss. And yet he did, and why? Peter says, he suffered for you. He committed no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. But he did that for me, for us. His suffering as difficult as it is for me to think through, is on account of my failures. But he didn't just suffer on our behalf. He suffered perfectly. See, when I suffer, there's a very good chance that people are going to hear about it. Jesus didn't suffer like I suffered. Look at what Peter writes in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten See, when Jesus suffered, he didn't fight back. In all the physical pain that he bore in his body, he never pushed back and resisted. Under all the verbal threats and abuse and the mocking and the scorning, there was not one word that was returned in kind. In fact, as you go through the Gospels, even in the midst of the shouting and the mocking, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The world tells us that when you suffer, there are two reasonable responses. One of those, stop the suffering in any way possible. And the other one, make sure that the ones who are causing you to suffer, suffer right along with you. When it's up to me, I stop the suffering, whether it's my fault or not that I'm suffering in the first place. Now think about who it is that we see suspended on that cross. This is Jesus the Christ, the one who spoke and worlds were formed. This is the one who, with a word, banished sickness and disease. This is the one who, with a word, calmed the storms. This is the one who, with a word, brought people back from death to life. This is the one who knows the hearts of men. What could Christ have done? could have ended it in a moment with a word put a stop to all of it he could have exposed the sinful thoughts and hearts and intentions of every man woman and child in that crowd he could have utterly destroyed the legions of rome without exercising a fraction of his power but he stays not because he's forced to but because he suffers for a divine purpose because he suffers obediently and he suffers perfectly. The only one who had no reason to suffer and the only one who had every ability to stop his suffering would willingly walk through that for me. Why? Why would someone like that suffer for someone like me? Why would he continue to do that when he could have put a stop to it? Well, it's because he suffered faithfully. He suffered 
with full knowledge and conviction of what was coming next. If you look at verse 23, he didn't revile. He didn't re- when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but instead, what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He kept on entrusting himself to God who always gets it right. The people got it wrong. Barabbas or the king of the Jews, they got it wrong. The religious leaders got it wrong. They called him a blasphemer, a liar. Pilate got it wrong. He went with what was popular, what was comfortable, what would preserve his own position and his standing, even though he knew Jesus was innocent. God never gets it wrong. And Jesus knew that as he was the perfectly obedient son, he would see the perfect faithfulness of his father. The plan was in place. And it was in place from before Adam took his first breath. It was in place before the sin in the garden. It was in place before man was separated from God. The plan was in place. And the sacrifice of the son in drinking the cup that the father had given him would yield exactly what the Father promised. Because he entrusted himself to the one who is always just. But here's the reality. The justice of God is either very, very good news for you on this Good Friday or it is very, very bad news for you on this Good Friday. Because God never gets it wrong. Christ suffered sinless. But the wages of sin is death. Sin always kills. Sin always separates. That is what it does. And the question is, if you and I sin, and we do and we have and we continue to, then who will bear the weight of that sin? And that's what moves us not just from the picture of Christ's suffering, but to the purpose of His suffering. Peter holds it up as an example. Peter says, you are suffering and your life is difficult, but be faithful. Just as Christ entrusted himself to God who is always faithful, you too, precious believer, can continue entrusting yourself to God who remains faithful. But that work on the cross that Christ did accomplished eternal good. Look at what Peter writes in verse 24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Again, the suffering of Christ isn't some distant, theoretical, theological textbook problem that we read about and analyze. Sin is a personal reality with eternal implications. Sin is not something that happened to a people long ago and far away, a people out there that are just a little bit different, a little bit worse than me. Sin is a characteristic of who I was. And sin has a consequence. Everything has a price, and sin has its price. The fact that the sun hangs on that cross is not something that I can just think about as it relates to the world around me or to the people around me. I have to come face to face with the reality that as the sun hangs on that cross, he does it for me, for my failure. That's sobering. We're an independent people. We don't like asking for help moving, let alone 
help with something as weighty as the eternity of our soul. I don't like the discomfort of knowing that somebody might have had to suffer a little bit of loss because I made a mistake. If I'm honest, I can hardly wrap my mind around the idea that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would suffer and die for my sin. Good Friday reminds me of the fact that I need to stop and consider just that. That for once in my life, I need to stop talking and consider this Christ. I need to stop making excuses for my sin that I am so quick to make. I need to stop making the justifications for my failures that I'm so quick to make and I'm so good at. I need to stop making the comparisons where at least I'm not as bad as I could be or at the very least I'm not as bad as the worst person that I can think of in that particular category. Good Friday tells me to stop and for a moment remember that my sin had eternal consequence and it hangs there on the cross as Jesus Christ bears my sin in His own body. The wages of sin is death, and the cross proves that God is just. That he never gets it wrong. Because he wouldn't be just if he called the people to himself and said, I know you're sinners, but I'll just forget about it. I know you're sinners, but I'll just ignore it. I know that you're sinners, but I'll just pretend that you're something that you're not. That's not justice. The cross shows that God is just and that sin has its price and something will bear the weight of that sin. But the cross shows God's unthinkable and imaginable mercy. That he allowed someone to stand in my place, and not just someone, but the Son would stand in my place. And on the cross, he does what nothing else could. All the blood of the tens of thousands of bulls and lambs and goats through all the years of all the sacrifices of all the feasts and all the festivals and all of the law, and that all had purpose, It all covered sin, but it could only do it for a time because every sin demanded another sacrifice and every day brought more sin and more years and more blood. But this one, this Christ, does once and for all what nothing else could. It doesn't just cover. It cleans. It doesn't just delay God's judgment. It actually satisfies God's judgment. But it's more than just this legal and forensic declaration that we're clean. As good a news as that would be, as good and as eternally lasting as it would be to hear that God calls us righteous because Christ is righteous, it actually matters for us today. The hope of Good Friday is not just rooted in the fact that Christ died for our sins at some point, but in the fact that Christ enables us to live in a way that shows that our sins have been dealt with. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you were to look at Ephesians 2, when Paul writes that letter to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians 2 he says, before Christ you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And now Peter looks at that from the other side of the cross and he says, now that you are dead to sin, you can be found to be alive to righteousness. The sacrifice of Good Friday actually frees us to respond in a way that pleases God. Can you imagine that? (laughs) The idea that before 
Christ, nothing that you or I did could ever really matter on an eternal scale. Not the best action you've ever done, not the most generous thing you've ever given, not the most patience you've ever demonstrated. None of it matters in the scope of eternity. It might as well have been all filthy rags, worthless, shredded, and thrown away. But after the cross, Christ says you are now able to live in a way that's pleasing to the God who made you. In all your failure, in all your temporariness, in all your finite humanness, you can do righteous things. Those members of your body that according to Romans 6, you used to keep on presenting as tools of sin and unrighteousness, now you can use the body that God gave you to honor Him, to worship Him. The ones who are dead are made alive. The ones who were rebels and enemies are now called sons and daughters. Heirs to kingdom promises because we've undergone this radical heart change. Now, does that mean we won't continue to struggle with sin? Absolutely not. But it means that real hope, real change, and real obedience are not only possible, but they're the expectation for every believer. And then he gives them this beautiful picture. For you were straying like sheep, you were a wanderer, and so was I. Bent on finding your own road, your own way, your own provision with absolutely no ability to actually do those things. In other words, we wandered, and not only did we wander, we were content in our wandering. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Until Christ... We were wandering, and then God called out the name of his raggedy, wandering sheep, and they heard his voice, and they came. Don't you love the contrast and the tension there? You were a slave to sin, free to do whatever you wanted, and the only thing you wanted was whatever you wanted. But now you're brought under the control of the shepherd of your souls. And so freedom isn't autonomy to do what I want. Freedom now is the freedom to live a life that I couldn't have imagined, earned, or accomplished before. Freedom's not the freedom to do whatever I want, pursue my own lusts. Freedom is now the ability to live to righteousness. We're set loose so that we can be brought under control freed from the slavery of sin to be brought under the care of the shepherd. So Good Friday has this eternal transaction that we celebrate. And Good Friday reminds me that every day, each and every day, I'm called and enabled to respond to the voice of the shepherd in a way that is obedient. Every year, we come to these services with a whole list of expectations and understandings, and most of those are for good reasons. We read familiar verses. We work through familiar passages in familiar ways. Good Friday brings familiar images. A cross stained with the blood of our Savior. Good Friday brings a weight and a somberness to it. That's good. We've had themes over our last several Sundays. One of the things that we've tried to do at Chapel City this year is prepare our hearts 
more like how we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Sometimes Easter just kind of jumps us on us and it's here before we even know it. We've tried, we've tried to work some themes into the last few Sundays to help us prepare for that. And the first Sunday of the month, we remembered, we took communion together, and our theme was to remember what Christ had done. Last week, as we celebrated Palm Sunday, we talked about rejoicing, the fact that the King came and the understanding that the King is going to come again. And today, on Good Friday, we want to linger on the theme of repentance. The cross isn't just uncomfortable because it's a violent scene. The cross isn't uncomfortable just because it means that somebody has died. The cross is uncomfortable because it brings me face to face with my sin. I can't look at the cross without realizing that it should have been me. And so repentance brings us to a point of real sorrow and recognition over our sin, but repentance also brings us to the point of relief and joy in knowing that as often as we repent, God is faithful to forgive our sins, not because we've earned it, but because he is just and because his justice has already been satisfied through the work of Christ. But repentance can't only be a reflection on what I no longer want to do. Repentance means a change in direction. And so even as I talk about repentance today, I'm talking about a change, a recognition and a sorrow, a recognizing what sin is and a calling it what it is and asking for that forgiveness. But when I talk about repentance today, I want us to be a people that recognize that action flows out of that repentance. Not action because now we're determined to do it better. Not action because we're stronger and we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and now be obedient. But I'm talking about repentance leading to real action and real change because that cross on Good Friday made us dead to sin and alive in Christ. Dead to sin and living to righteousness. The fact that He's not only died our death, but that he's given us new life. A life that leads to victory over sin. A life that reminds us that every day we're cared for, overseen, fed, guided, and called to follow hard after the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's pray. Lord, you're good in a way that we cannot even imagine. That you would come and walk among your creation is a humility that we cannot parallel. That the Son would be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, is something that I pray we would never get over. That that would never sound normal. That that would never sound reasonable. That that would never sound fair. But that that would always silence us and bring us to the point of humble submission. And Lord, I pray that on this Good Friday we would be reminded not only of the terrible price of our sin, but of the mercy and grace of God that bore the wrath on our behalf. God, make us a people of action, not on our own strength, but because you have given us new life. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And we are going to celebrate communion together, but we're going to do it in a little bit of a different way than we normally do. Um, one of the things that I'm aware of, as often as we do communion in corporate gatherings, is that when we have visitors and we have people that might not have experienced these things, or you might be here for any one of a hundred different reasons, I want this to be clear. 
Uh, communion is not something that we do at a specific time to check off a box so that God might be pleased with us. Communion is not something that fills up the spiritual tank to make sure that you stay right with God. Communion is simply an external action that mirrors an internal reality. It reminds us of what Christ has done and it draws us back to that remembrance. It reminds us of those things that he promised, the cleansing, the new covenant promises. And if you don't know those things, if you don't understand those things, if you've never come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is in your life, then I would invite you simply not to take communion. Not because you're not worthy, because none of us are, but because I wouldn't want this to confuse the reality of what is happening. I would much rather take the time to talk with you, to explain it, and to ensure that your heart is in the right place as you do that. And for those of us that are believers, I would encourage us and remind us once again not to do it lightly. That in our busy lives, in our busy weeks, as we prepared for a busy spring break and a busy family time with a busy Easter weekend, that we stop for just a moment. And I'm going to invite you to come to the foot of the cross and repent. And we are going to do that which is the most uncomfortable thing in our culture. And that is we are going to sit and be quiet for just a moment. Take a moment to reflect on your own life. To think about those places, those areas, those things where you need to repent of your sin. To call it what God calls it. To ask for forgiveness and then, then to be reminded of the beauty and the comfort and the relief that is found in that. So take just a moment, just between you and the Lord, in quiet, and I'll come back and close us in prayer, and then I'll explain the next step. Lord, we'll never run out of the need for repentance. As long as you give us breath, we know that we'll fight against the flesh, against the temptation, against the sin that so easily ensnares and entangles us. Lord, thank you for the ability to come before you again and again. And not to promise we'll do it better next time. But to cry out to you as the one who has satisfied the righteous wrath that we deserved. To come to you and to plead not our goodness, but to plead the blood of Christ that has done what we could not. Lord, I pray that repentance would be so natural, so normal, so frequent in our lives, that we live in this humble place of being ready to repent. Lord, how deeply that would impact our relationships. How 
soft and how tender that would make us as a people. I pray that you would help that to be a reality. And Lord, even as you bring us to repentance, please remind us of hope that sin should not bring us despair or sorrow, but that sin should bring us to repentance, which should bring us immediately into the wonder and the grace and the rejoicing in your provision. Lord, we long to be with you. We long to be with you in your presence, made fit to worship you face to face when we won't have to deal with the sin and the failure anymore. But Lord, until that day, keep us close to the foot of the cross with humility and hope. In Christ's name, amen.